break. Uh, we were listening to some of the comments made at the big uh, climate rally in Vancouver yesterday. And also we heard from one of the complainants, the uh, plaintiffs in the case that was filed in federal court in Vancouver yesterday. But what can actually be done when we're talking about climate change and to fight climate change? Something we don't talk about all that much is population. Well, my next guest is here to talk about that. Daryl Bricker is a fellow at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He also co-wrote Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline. Daryl Bricker, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Uh, it's, I, I know you can't oversimplify and, we, uh, and say that, oh, it's just population. If we, if we just lower the number of people, we take some of the stress off the planet, problem solved. But it does seem like we don't well, talk about population all that much. Yeah, no, we don't. And, and to the extent that we do, we're generally misinformed. So, uh, and the reason for that is because there's a lot of people out there who've been repeating this thing probably since about the 16th century. <laughs> You know, when Robert Malthus first wrote about the fact that the global population was going to be out of control and we wouldn't be able to feed ourselves. Every generation produces its own version of this, and, and we're back into it again. And the truth is, today, uh, what we're having is a, a global population is expanding, but most of that expansion is coming from people not dying, not from new people being born. Uh, and we're getting really, really good in the world at keeping people alive, and life expansion is increasing everywhere in the world. But the actual number of people being born is rapidly declining. So, for example, in Canada, uh, the average woman during her lifetime only usually has 1.5 kids. So we're, uh, in order to replace your population, your, uh, your birth rate needs to be about 2.1. So without immigration or without aging, the Canadian population would actually be declining. Hmm, which is which is an interesting way of looking or to look at those numbers, because I think if you asked people, is the population declining or increasing, people would just assume it's increasing. Oh, it is, it is increasing and it will to about mid-century. It'll peak at around eight, eight and a half billion people, maybe slightly less, maybe slightly more, and then it will start to rapidly decline. How far it will go down, we don't really know. But the UN for years has been saying you know, the global population is out of control. Until fairly recently, they said that it was going to grow to 11.2 billion people, which will never happen uh, by 2100. And in fact, they've just readjusted uh, a couple of months ago their estimates down now to less than, uh, less than 11 billion, about 10.9. And by the way, they'll keep doing it every year because the fertility statistics don't justify uh, thinking that the global population is going to be that size. So how do we know that it will get to about 8.5 billion and then start declining? No, because we can take a look at what fertility rates are today in the world, which are lower in most countries than what the UN has. Um, for example, 36% of the global population, sorry to your listeners for all these numbers, but um, they're, they're, these are the kind of things that will stick in your brain. Uh, 36% of the global population lives in two countries, China and India. The biggest country in the world in population today is China. Now, depending on whose estimates you believe, the birth rate is either um, going to go up to 1.8 or is probably going to decline closer to about 1. You can decide which one, but neither one of them at a replacement rate. India today, the fertility rate is 2.1, just enough to replace the population and declining. So those two countries aren't having kids. Who is? Look at the developed world, you know, Canada, Western Europe. All of them have, there's not a single country in those groups that have above replacement rate fertility, not one. The UN is estimating that some countries' fertility is actually going to go up. Well, you go to those countries and you take a look like John Ibbotson and I did in Empty Planet, and nobody's having kids. So if you're not having kids, inevitably what's going to happen is the global population is going to start to decline. 
And as much as that sounds like something out of a out of a movie that's a, 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 a very bad movie, uh, is that not a good thing though? In that it's it, it's not as though we're going to wipe out the human race, but is a decline in population a good thing? Well, you can decide if it's a good thing or a bad thing. What John and I say in the book is, you know, it's not a good thing, it's not a bad bad thing, but it's a big thing, and it's the single biggest trend um, in terms of population that's going to hit our the, this century in terms of humanity. There's no doubt about it. And as far as population declining is concerned, it's locked in. The decisions have already been made. And and uh, so it is going to decline. Uh, the impact on the environment is probably going to be quite good. Um, if you believe that uh, human beings generate all of the things that are bad for our environment, then fewer of them is probably going to be a good thing. Uh, but if you uh, rely on an economy, and like we do, in which uh, um population really drives consumption, particularly younger population, it's probably going to be bad for that economy. Hmm. And an interesting point that you made off the top, too, in that it's a big part of this is the fact that people are living longer. And and we've, we've figured that out or through healthcare, I would imagine, and through medical breakthroughs we've found or healthier living, we've found a way for lifespan to be longer. Yeah, we have. I mean, so if you look at in Canada, and let's stick to what we know the best, uh, the average person in the 1920s lived to the age of 57. Today, they live to the age of 82. So we've added, what, 30% to human life, 40, you know, close to 40% to human life in Canada in about 100 years. So as a result of that, um, you have situations like, for example, and this will ring true for people in British Columbia. Um, there's 7,900 people in Canada today who are 100 years of age or older. By uh, 2060, actually 2063, Statistics Canada estimates that there will be over almost 80,000 people 100 years of age or older, which is the same size as the city of Victoria. Hmm. Which also brings into question then when you talk about the need for the younger population as well, the people living that are over 100 aren't still working and aren't still and, and probably um, will need more support. So is there, it's, do you see an imbalance then or more of an imbalance uh, coming? Oh, sure. I mean, in Canada, we're going to reach a tipping point, and we're already just about there, in which we already we only have two people working for every person who's retired. So um, the, the problem is going to come into the future, uh, you know, a real debate about if we're living to the age of 82, why are we retiring at the age of 65, particularly when those people are actually quite healthy? And how is it possible that the younger population is going to be able to pay to support that group of the population? Uh, if you look at the average Canadian today, so that's median age, you know, half the population's older, half the population is younger, it's 41. We're not a young population. We haven't been for quite a while. But what I'm telling you right now, Joe, nobody knows. Hmm. Instead, what we do, instead, what we do is we, you know, uh, jump on these things with uh, Meghan, uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry saying, oh, my God, the world population is out of control. We need to stop having kids. Guess what, guys? We already have. <laughs> Way ahead of you on that one. I'm saying I'm wonderful because I took out the garbage tonight. Well, everybody does. (laughs) It's just it's not it's not anything to to you know. You don't need a spokesperson for it. You don't need somebody to be the representative of it. Everybody's already doing it. And and for example, the birth rate in in the UK today is 1.8. They said they're going to have two kids. Apparently, that's too many. (laughs) I mean, so it's not not anything to you know. And it's because people don't know the facts. And the facts, honestly, Jill, are not in dispute. 
We've seen in the past, uh, China would come to mind then when, we've, when we look at uh, population control in the, the rule they had for so long, only allowing one child. Is that something that we, I mean, is it something we should be tinkering with? Is, is, that, what, is that part of the reason that we are in this position today? Or do we, should we let population figure itself out? Well, as long as it's a matter of free choice, and I think most people believe that it should be a matter of free choice, people are going to decide to do what they want to do. So uh, the reasons for population decline and and the changing in our fertility rates are are basically urbanization. So we're going through the biggest um, movement of people in human history right now, and it's people moving from the countryside to the city. Um, And as a result of that, when they move to the city, women make different choices about their lives. So if you look at your family um, and your parents and your grandparents, I would suggest that it's probably every generation has had a fewer number of kids. So, you know, the average Canadian woman back in 1960 got married at the age of 20, and she had her first uh, kid probably when she was around 20 or 22. She had four in her lifetime. The average Canadian woman today gets married, if she gets married, around the age of 30, and has her first kid shortly after and probably has two and stops. Uh, and that's that's what's happening all over the world. See, we think we think that's only happening maybe in our immediate situation. We don't really look around at our families. We don't look at our communities. We don't actually look at what's happening in other places. And that is what's what's happening. So unless you can develop a public policy that's going to change that, the trend will just continue, and it will continue everywhere. Well, it's uh, very interesting, uh, interesting numbers and uh, information. We will leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this today. I appreciate it. Yeah, and if people want to learn more about it, pick up Empty Planet. Time to talk a little ICBC and two pretty big stories coming out these pa- this past week, the past few days. Mike Smith was on top of them and he joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Good morning to you. Hiya, Jill. The first one, so you first wrote about this settlement, which I think people looked at the numbers and thought, what the heck is going on there? Uh, talk yeah. a little bit about that. All right, this is a settlement I got a hold of the uh, some of the details on it, Jill, and basically it was a case where there was a $75,000 settlement reached between ICBC and a, and a person injured in a car accident but there were massive legal bills in the case. ICBC ended up paying out over $127,000. Most of that went to legal bills. The person who was injured in the crash actually got only $22,874, so just a fraction of the money, the total monies that were paid out. And it is shocking because when you look at it, you go, well, what happened to all this other money? A lot of it was just gobbled up in legal fees. There were extraordinary sums paid out to obtain expert uh, witness reports, medical records in a case that dragged out for seven years. So the expert reports, there were nine of them at all in this case. These are reports that are written up by doctors, psychologists, rehab consultants, cost more than $28,000 for this report. One for these uh, reports, one report from one doctor alone cost $11,000. There were $25,000 in legal fees. And some of the some of the charges just really jump off the page like $9,000 for reprographic charges, which is another which is a fancy way of saying photocopies and scanning documents. 
That was the one that, that jumped out. I mean, they're all big numbers, yeah. but that one in particular, I thought, seemed like a very high number. It seems like a lot. $6,000 for transcription services, even like $277 for binders and CDs. Um, the, the law firm involved here charged a 10% interest rate on uh, before settlement expenses. So the client here got racked up for $13,000 in interest charges. And the reason I got a hold of this document was the client here is unhappy that so much money in the settlement had been gobbled up in legal fees. Now, it's one of these cases that Attorney General David Eby has been pointing at saying, like, this is part of the dumpster fire, as he calls it, over at ICBC. And it's one of the things he's trying to clean up. He says, look, we're spending way too much money on lawyers in trying to settle these cases. And he's taken some action to try and try and stem that flow of money. And one of the things that he did was he brought in a cap or a limit on the number of these expert witness reports that can be entered into these cases. So it would be a maximum of three reports for a case that's worth over $100,000 or two expert reports in cases under $100,000. EB this week suffered a major setback on that. The BC Trial Lawyers Association, which represents the lawyers here, they went to court. They argued that these caps on these limits on these expert reports were unconstitutional and unfair to their clients, and they won. They won in court. The BC Supreme Court set aside those rules. So it's a big setback for EB. And it could mean that the dumpster fire over at ICBC keeps on burning. <laughs> Were you surprised by that? Because David Eby's a smart man. He's a lawyer himself. Were you surprised that this went and uh, was shot down so quickly by the court? I was a little bit surprised because when Eby brought in these measures, he was asked, are you sure this can stand up to legal challenge? And he said, yeah, we've had our people research this. We believe we're on firm uh, constitutional and legal ground here. He said that other jurisdictions have brought in similar rules. He said there are similar rules on uh, in other provinces in Canada. And he said notably outside of Canada, in the UK and Australia, very, very similar rules on uh, limits on these type of adversarial expert reports allowed in car crash cases. So he said he believed that we can withstand um, this, uh, this challenge in court. But I'll tell you, I, I spoke to him the day before the judgment came out and I asked him, are you worried you might lose this case? And he looked at me and he said, yes, I am. I'm very worried. He, he, he said to me, our lawyers got beat up in court on this case. So I think he had a feeling that the judge in this case was not going to side with the government. So that's a big setback. EB said that they were hoping that this would save $400 million dollars. So that is now off the table, and it means that ICBC, he had hoped, would be back in the black this year. Probably won't be now. The losses will probably continue now at ICBC. And what do you think that means? Because we're already hearing so many stories of people saying renewing under the new rules. They're paying way more than they anticipated. This was supposed to be a huge cost savings. It's not. So like you said, that dumpster keeps on burning. Yeah, I think it's bad news for drivers because we're already seeing a lot of drivers getting hit with big ICBC increases. And unless the government steps in here now and 
further subsidizes ICBC or orders a rollback or limit on ICBC rate hikes, you could see ICBC premiums continue to rise. And there's another kind of a warning sign on the horizon here as well on another court case that EB could potentially lose here. Another thing that he had, a rule that he had brought in in order to limit costs at ICBC was a cap of $5,500. That would be the maximum payout to someone who suffers a quote-unquote minor injury in a car crash. These type of cases had been averaging at $30,000 for a payout. The government said, we're going to put a cap on it, 5500 The trial lawyers were mad as hell at that one, too. And they're suing the government over it. Similar constitutional court case. I asked E.B. about that one. Are you worried about losing that one, too? And he said, yes, I'm worried about losing this one as well. Not clear when that one's going to be decided, Jill. Still in front of, still in front of the courts. But I'll tell you, if EB has a double loss here, if he loses in court in that one, then his ICBC problems are going to get even worse. Uh, absolutely, we'll be watching that. It really yep. makes you think, though, and, and getting back to the, the settlement that you highlighted, that the, the person who was not happy, obviously, and came forward, you got to think in a case like that, here's ICBC paying out more than $120,000. The person gets twenty two. Had they just right. said, here's seventy five grand, here's fifty grand, here's a hundred grand, everybody would have saved. And not to say that lawyers don't do a good job and they're not necessary. Of course they are. But in a case like this, it seems like there would be a better way to do it. Well, if you talk to the trial lawyers, they'll say, yeah, I mean, you know, their preference is to settle with ICBC up front. But then they'll say, look, the, the trial lawyers feel like they're getting really beat up and they're, and they're being made to look like the bad guys here. They're saying, we're, try, we're just defending our clients and trying to get the best settlement we can for people who are injured in car crashes, sometimes people who suffer catastrophic injuries. And they say they're going to go to the wall to, to get their client the best settlement they can they say that that means that sometimes they got to fight ICBC and that often ICBC is uh, is hesitant to give them a fair settlement. So in a case like that, they say they have no option but to go out and hire these experts to provide testimony and reports and dig through detailed medical records in order to prove that their client is in line for for a fair settlement. So they say that a lot of these legal costs that are being driven up, up, and up are not just the lawyer's fault, but it's also ICBC's fault. And the lawyers have said, look, there are better ways we, we should sit down and talk about this rather than fighting each other in court. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe the government should talk more to these lawyers to try and find out a better way because EB has lost once in court. He could lose again. All right. So we will leave it there. Mike, thank you so much. Hey, anytime, Joel. So last year, around this time, working at Global, I did a story about the poppy tin at a legion in New Westminster being stolen. And there was surveillance video that showed a man go up to the counter. He put his jacket over the tin and then he carefully carried it away with him and took it. So with no one noticing at the time, they then realized the tin was gone, saw the footage. And when I posted that footage and that story, I got to say... There was outrage. It was one of those stories that prompted a lot of email and people saying that they would really love to help 
catch this guy because it is such a heinous crime to be stealing from the poppy fund. And unfortunately, it seems every year we have stories of theft or some kind of uh, some kind of theft happening. Well, this year it is phone scammers that are trying to take advantage and we're not even into November yet. Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this and uh, what we can be aware of is Jim Howard, who is the administrator of the Vancouver Poppy Fund. Jim, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. It's just hard to believe that every year people try and take advantage and scam this fund, which does such great things. But what is happening this year as far as phone scammers? Well, I was informed by one of my... um donors that she had received a phone call from someone claiming to be Royal Canadian Legion Poppy Fund asking for her donation and she was uh, expected to give it to them through either a Visa or a MasterCard. And she had phoned me and informed me of this and she told me she hadn't given them anything which was a good thing but uh, I had told her at that time you know that is not the way 99.9% of the legions do not solicit that way at poppy time. Right. So if somebody gets a phone call from somebody who claims to be with the legion and collecting money for the poppy fund, can you assume that it's it's not a legitimate call? Pretty well you can assume it's a fraud. I mean, out some of the smaller uh, towns and that sort of thing out in the valley and up country a ways, some of them will phone. But unfortunately, there's no way of verifying unless what you do is you hang up on them and then phone the Legion back. Right, which which wouldn't be the worst thing to do. And if somebody's a legitimate person asking for money, then they should be okay with that too. Oh yeah, they wouldn't mind at all. Uh, what do you think about the fact that, that here we are talking about a phone scam that uh, clearly has started up? As I mentioned last year, often we're talking around this time of year around people stealing uh, the poppy, the tins. Uh, it's got to be frustrating that every year during this campaign, there are people trying to steal. Well, yeah, it is. It's, it's really tough that some individuals out there seem to think they need it more than our veterans do. Um, I understand as well, you've heard through some stories that uh, in Alberta as well, some fake poppy trays have... Yes, there's some out, I've seen it on the uh, on the Facebook program where the, the it's a poppy can or a can with a poppy with a maple leaf on either side of the poppy. It doesn't say on the can that it's a legion thing, but with the poppy on it, one assumes that that's what it's for. Now, the only thing is that officially... We are not supposed to be soliciting for funds for the poppy campaign until yesterday. Okay. Yesterday was our opening day. So how does somebody know then if they see, because I know we sometimes see them placed at Starbucks or different businesses will have the poppy collection bins. How does somebody, is there a way to make sure that what you're looking at is an authentic poppy collection tin or box? Most of them have like within Vancouver proper, what it is is it's a square, um, a square plastic tub with the poppies around the outside, the little tower in the center for you to put your donation, and on the back of that is a is a card that stands up on the back of that saying thank you for your donation. And if you look at the back of it, there's a little note that says on it, if you need more poppies, this is who to contact. And it'll be a phone number and that of a Legion branch. Okay. Are there specific places where the bins go? Or are there places where if somebody was to see it there and it didn't look quite right, that would be a hint that it might be fraudulent as well? 
Well, not really, because pretty well all of our uh, all of our, our stores, the retail outlets, the liquor stores, they all welcome the branches to bring in their trays and set them up, or to have uh, cadets or veterans out front tagging with with the larger trays and the individual actually tagging and pinning the poppy on you. Right. Okay. So, so the best thing then to make sure to look at it, and there's nothing wrong, I would imagine, with somebody if you're uh, somebody from the public making a donation or grabbing a poppy from the tray to actually physically take a look at the card and make sure it's a legitimate card with a phone number. Just, just be careful when you go to pick it up. <laughs> there's <laughs> pins in there. Exactly. <laughs> um, and the same, I would imagine, too, with the people who are distributing the poppies, whether you're in front of the liquor store at a uh, grocery store, and that uh, you wear the the identification or that connects you to the legion yeah most of the most of the folks that are going to be out tagging will be one form of one of our cadet leagues army navy air cadets or they'll be actual in legion uniform themselves and the ones that will also very likely be wearing a ribbon that says either poppy volunteer or or poppy campaign all right red ribbon and talk a little bit, if you can. Now, we tend to focus on uh, the, the scam, so we want to make sure people know that, that not to be scammed, that the phone call is, is most likely a scam, and to be just be careful where you're donating. But this is the biggest fundraiser for the Legion, this Poppy campaign. What does the money, what is it used for? Okay, well, first, as a correction, it's okay. not a fundraiser for the Legion. Sorry. All it right. is a fundraiser for the Poppy Fund, and the Poppy Fund is limited. It is uh, it is basically it's public funds in trust to be used for the veterans and their dependents who are in need or falling through the cracks of the veterans affairs programs. All right. And what what kinds of things do, does the money go to? What is it is it used for? Well, in in the case of the Vancouver Poppy Fund, we have our veterans. Some of them living on the streets. Some of them are in the single single room housing and that type of thing and they'll come in and we can supply them with food with um, assistance with their rent at times their um, dental work hearing aids transportation just basically right across the the board as to what anyone needs and some of the larger donations we put together is the PTSD program at uh, UBC the OSI programs just to, to help the veterans and their widows and dependents that, that need the assistance. That's basically where it's for. And is there a goal every year on how much, uh, how many, uh, the funds that you would like to raise? Oh, I mean, you've always got a, a pie in the sky, as <laughs> it were, but we can't set a goal as such because we don't want, when we're out on the street and asking for assistance, we don't want to be pushing. That makes sense. Is there a number, though? I, I know it's in the hundreds of thousands as far as the number of poppies that get distributed. Yes, I, I ordered this year for Vancouver. Now, there's six legions and two Army and Navies that are involved involved in our campaign. And this year, we ordered 400,000 lapel poppies. Wow. That, and is that more than, than usual, or is that pretty no, standard? This is, this is basically what we go through, is the 400,000 approximately. All right. And you know, every year people people wonder about the design of the poppies because they fall off. So the 400,000 doesn't necessarily mean 400,000 people, but you go through, I think the average what is probably around three, four, possibly five poppies a year because you look down and suddenly it's fallen off and you have to go get another one, which oh, I yes. think is well, a there brilliant. Are, there are secrets <laughs> as to how you can uh, 
how you can thread it through the coat so they don't fall off. That's true, but then you wouldn't then you wouldn't have to make the donation every time you go by somebody exactly. distributing. That's why there are things that have come out over the over the years where you you can put a little something on the pin so it doesn't fall off. Or and this is brought out by our Dominion Command program, and I keep saying no, we don't want those mm. because that's about twenty percent of our business. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and and just to clarify too, because this seems to be a debate every year: is it okay to put a pin through the poppy, or is that wrong? Well, if it's like the little flags and that that you see, it's, uh, I mean, nobody's going to slap you for it. Right. But it, it isn't, uh, it's considered desecration of the poppy. Okay. Even if it's a Legion-issued pin? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Good to know. Well, I hope that uh, people uh, take that warning. So if you get a phone call, there's a good chance it is a scam call. So be careful and uh, be careful when donating at the boxes, because the main thing is uh, we want to fundraise and uh, people want to to take part. People want their money to go to the right place uh, if they are uh, donating and getting those poppies. Jim, thank you so much. Always good to talk to you. And I hope the campaign is a great success this year. My pleasure. Thank you so much for giving us the time. Halloween is just around the corner. I've been seeing a lot of posts, uh, one about the idea of using the blue bucket for kids that have autism, so that when people are handing out candies and stuff and other whatever you do on Halloween when kids come to your door, that uh, they get a bit of a heads up uh, with, with that. But I'm also seeing this campaign, which I find very interesting. It's called the Treat Accessibility, Accessibility, Accessibly Lawn Signs, easy to say, uh, meaning that they're trying to make it easier for kids that might have some mobility issues and make sure that they're not left out for Halloween. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Elton Ash, who's a regional vice president of Remax of Western Canada. Elton, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Great to be with you. Uh, what is the campaign? Maybe walk us through uh, what what is this campaign? How did it uh, come about? And what what does it all what is it all about? Yeah, exactly. You know, back in and this is a, a pretty new campaign, but. Back in 2017 in Toronto, Rich Padillo um, noticed and started thinking about the neighbor across the street and how his son was in a wheelchair and that uh, he wouldn't be able to get up Rich's stairs, his own stairs, to get some candy. And so as Rich thought about that, he thought, you know, how could I make this a better experience for, for my friend's child? And started thinking, you know, well, all I have to do is be down at the bottom of my stairs and hand out candy like that. So he started talking to his neighbors about it, and they all really thought it was a great idea as well. And uh, it's it just grew from that. And so Home Depot and Remax, it's sort of interesting. We both kind of heard about this experience, talked to Rich about it, and, and then kind of just put it together. So it's really all about inclusivity. And, and we all know how our children look so forward to Halloween, getting dressed up and especially to young kids. And I think the parents look forward to it more than anyone with uh, when it was their first Halloween, you know, they're four or five years old. And, uh, and so when a child has accessibility issues, it, you know, it, it, they just can't have the same enjoyment. So it's all around inclusivity and community. And interesting, too, and I'm guessing, too, it's not that people were trying to exclude kids from trick-or-treating, but it might be something that you just wouldn't think about. Exactly. I mean, we all just... You know, we live in our communities, and and Halloween often is in in the area I live in, which is, you know, a lot of young families. Believe it or not, we'll get upwards to 450 children (laughs) a night. And, uh, uh, yeah, you don't think. And we lived in a sort of Victorian home that had stairs, 
And you start to think about that and you realize, well, this is a great opportunity and and to kind of promote it a bit. And so Home Depot has just been a tremendous partner in this through their 160 stores across Canada. We have uh, the the both of us have put together 20,000 of these little signs. It's just kind of like on wireframes you can stick in your lawn or have, you know, attached to the front door. Just again and bring the party to the street. And so where can people get the signs? Just any Home Depot has them. We have had a lot of calls about it, and uh, we direct them to the Home Depot that's closest to them. They have them in stock. As mentioned, we have over 20,000 signs throughout the country at the 160 stores. So it's just a matter of going in. And if they don't um, see the sign, uh, give a REMAX office a call. Everyone's well aware of it. And the idea being, too, I was reading about this, uh, saying it's okay if you to put it on your yard now. So people, parents, yeah. because parents with kids that, that are either in a wheelchair or have mobility issues, they're, they know all too well exactly what the challenges are. So they're probably already scouting out neighborhoods or they know which neighborhoods are the ones that they want to take their kids. Whereas if the signs are out, then that would help them. That's, that's the big point. And and ultimately, I think when we're in our communities, we all want to make it as enjoyable experience for all our neighbors. And so it's important that the word gets out there about it. And, and, it, and again, it's just about inclusivity and, and uh, being a good neighbor. Yeah. Uh, and what about after the signs? Just recycle them like you would an election sign or any other sign, I imagine? <laughs> Absolutely. They're, it's recyclable material. So you throw it in the blue box, uh, the wireframe probably fairly similar i know the uh the plastic uh, vinyl cover that goes over it it's a it just fits over the wireframe so it can easily be disposed of in the recycled bin later on or you keep it for next year yeah you know, it, exactly the other thing and i would hope actually that they would keep it for next year and put it in the garage and they're not very big and uh bring it out again next year about mid-october and uh make people aware of it that you're you're there to as i say take the party to the street with the children because oftentimes we don't expect anybody to build an accessibility ramp or anything like that it's just uh you know be at the bottom of the stairs or at your garage where uh you know if it's from the front driveway and and just uh kind of be there to hand out candy from there uh, you mentioned it started uh, in Toronto. Has it uh, taken off? Or are you getting uh, a lot of response in other cities? Yes, we are. Uh, through social media especially, we've been getting a lot of messaging now because people, you know, even with our own realtors, we have 22,000 sales associates across the country. It's often hard to communicate to all of them. And we've had our own realtors walk into a Home Depot and say, hey, What's this orange sign with a little balloon on the bottom, with our balloon on the bottom? What's that all about? And so we explain it. So it's helped to uh, get the communication out there as well. As I say, Home Depot has just been a tremendous partner in this. Well, and exactly. And like you said, too, it's all about just making sure kids don't feel left out on what's supposed to be a fun night. Exactly. Exactly. And and really, again, yeah, inclusivity and, and making sure that kids have a great time. All right. Well, that's great. So again, so people can go to their Home Depot if uh, they have one in their neighborhood. If they don't see a sign there, contact Remax uh, and get yep. a sign that way. Exactly. Yeah. A few of our uh, our offices have them in stock where there's been issues. Uh, well, I shouldn't say issues, but but uh, just trying to get them out there and making sure it's aware. This is a, a new program, as I mentioned earlier. It's started last year and kind of as a uh, local thing in Toronto and then has spread across the country in a big way this year. 
All right. So, well, hopefully we see more of those signs out and people will be thinking about that on Halloween. Thank you so much, Elton, for joining us and talking about this today. Appreciate it. You're most welcome and, and have an enjoyable Halloween yourself.